This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software, iris.co.uk. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, what I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD Phase 1 because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where do they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international listeners. And there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole making tax digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. It's the Accounting Influencers Podcast once more. I'm Rob Brown. I'm here with Martin Bissett. And uh, Martin, our show is really taking off, isn't it? Now we're hitting all quarters of the globe. I didn't know the globe was in quarters, but yeah, absolutely we are. And we're delighted that this is reaching the audience that we want it to reach. We also want to say thank you to all of you. We are increasing numbers of listeners, unique listeners that is, on a regular weekly basis. And we want to continue doing so. And for that, we've got to bring you quality. So what are we bringing you this time? Well, in the news, we take a look at what 2022 has in store for the accounting profession. Any different from any other year? Yes, it is. And we look in depth onto that one. And Martin, we have a lot of conversations, don't we, with accounting leaders and influencers on these challenging times. And it's very difficult for accounting practitioners and firms to plan ahead 90 days now, let alone two years, thrive, five years, 10 years. So long-term planning is a little bit of a mystery, but we can certainly predict with some certainty what might be coming up over the next year or so. Absolutely. Yeah, we can. And we also need to look at short-term planning for accounting firms, not known for planning generally, but there are certain deadlines, certain changes in legislation, certain advances in technology coming up that we can foresee and we can get ready for. In the first of two leaders specials, we occasionally bring these onto the podcast where we interview significant figures in the accounting world. And we've got coming up Samantha Louie from Praxity. She's the new global CEO. She's taken over from Graham Gordon, who was recently honored at the Digital Accountancy Forum here in the UK for his services to the accounting profession. Samantha is from South Africa. She is a firebird. She has got loads of things to say. She's got a fantastic vision for Praxity and some amazing things to say about the accounting profession generally. And in here's what works, Martin. What are we talking about there? Well, for our listeners, have you ever found yourself working for a client and realized that you cost more per hour pretty much than the job makes in terms of profit? <laughs> you wouldn't be alone and you wouldn't be the first and you're not going to be the last either. And so if we're ever going to increase profitability seriously with an accounting firm, we need the top brass, that's you, to decrease your labor intensity, D. L-I. And here's what works. We look at what has actually worked within accounting firms for the senior executives to decrease their labor intensity and increase their uh, both productivity and profitability at the same time. And hopefully, Martin, that will stop the accounting partners and senior people who are on $200, 200 pounds an hour doing 10 pound and 20 pound an hour jobs, right? Uh, at least, yes, and, the, and there are worse cases than that. The you're too expensive objection that we hear so often coming from the business owner to the accounting firm could just as easily be employed from the managing partner to the main staff or clients of the firm. Too expensive. We've got to find a way for your practice to become a business. 
we wrap up with an interview with Mark Jenkins. You may know him based in New Zealand. He created the Gap Portal, has a lot to say about advisory for accounting firms. And he's got some really interesting thoughts on client education to drive growth. What do your clients know about you and everything you do as a firm? How well are you positioning other services that your firm provide? How much can they talk about you when you're not there and be advocates of your service and referral sources? Mark's the genius on this, and he's going to share some great stuff with us. So, uh, Martin, there's a lot to pack in this week. There is, and we haven't even talked about the bonus yet. Saturday bonuses, yes. We've got a, a series of these coming up. We won't have them in this Monday show, but you can tune in on Saturday. And what we've got coming up there, Martin? Well, I'd like to do a commercial for this one, guys, because in the Saturday bonus, and who doesn't like a bonus on a Saturday, let's be honest, <laughs> we have a series called Why Didn't They Buy, which looks at what an accountant has told me, not an accountant singular, but what any given accountant has told me, uh, as being the reason why they didn't win a client versus what the client themselves told me was the reason when I went and asked them. Now, in why didn't they buy? This has become very, very popular. We're not uh, used to having accountants rushing towards us to give us feedback. We generally find out by download numbers what's popular, and this one is off the charts. So this time we're looking at what happens or what's behind the statement when the client says, I couldn't see what they, the new accountant, could deliver that my current accountant can't or doesn't or won't. And therefore, differentiation as it matters to the business owner is the subject this week. Fantastic. Thank you all for tuning in. Enjoy this week's Monday episode. Remember, you can get standalone shows. They're a little bit shorter Tuesday through Saturday. And every Sunday, we give you a video and an audio trailer of what is coming up the following week. We appreciate you all sharing. Thank you to our commercial partners as well, without whom all of this would be a lot more difficult and growing at a lot smaller rate. We appreciate you all. Have a fantastic day and enjoy the listening. The Accounting Influencers Podcast. Cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom. From the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world. The Accounting Influencers Podcast. So it's our new section of the podcast. And Martin, this is where you cast your eye on what is happening in the accounting and fintech world. And what has caught your imagination this week? Paul has. Paul who? <laughs> Paul, Paul Applin, who is a former tax and IT partner, is a columnist for Accounting Web. He's written what at first sight seems a fairly generic piece about what does 2020 have in store for the profession. But the headline caught my eye because straight away he said profession and not industry, which makes you think that a professional wrote it. So he talks about you know, the, the, the tax deadline rush, which we're all aware of, it's the same every single year. He then scans maybe one, two, three, four, five, six different issues where he thinks there'll be movement in the profession. And I think this has tremendous value for our listenership. So this is probably where, if I just summarize it um, to give you a flavor. Of the six, his first one was MTD again. Now again, for our non-UK listeners, this is making tax digital, which has now been an issue for five years here in the UK about digital tax returns, which the government always threatens to do, and we never quite get there. But what Paul's saying is that this is a part of a reform conversation, a tax reform conversation, and he believes that there'll be 278,000 businesses to where there'll be a real problem in estimating their tax bill. And this has implications internationally, Martin, because there's a number of countries that either do this already or are looking at the UK as a test case for how this might work out. Yeah, it is indeed. And again, I expect further delays. I expect the government to not be ready. But it's his second item that perhaps is more cutting, uh, which is titled, I've had 
enough. <laughs> the great resignation. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it says here, some practitioners are already wondering if this is the time to retire or change career. And it isn't just MTD um, and basis period reform fueling such thoughts. Now, the reason why this has resonated with me is because when I was carrying out the passport department research from 2012 through to 2016, one of the questions I asked the initial sample of data of respondents was, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the start of the, at the, start of the career? And the number of respondents, Rob, who said, if I had known how knotty and complicated regulation was going to get, I would never have become an accountant at all. And I got that over and over again. So this I've had enough section certainly speaks to the responses I had all those years ago. And again, as you say, we tie it into the great resignation. I don't know how much evidence there is for a great resignation or whether it's paper talk. Well, just, just to finish on that, Martin, I've had enough increasing pace of regulation, pace of technology, remote working, these are all contributive factors, as Paul writes. And we've talked before, haven't we, about the overwhelm, the fatigue, the anxiety in accounting profession. They are very busy, not being able to get mental resilience. So if you say they've had enough, I'm sure there are many that have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's every year. Every year, it's, I've had enough at the end of January, and then there's 11 months worth of anaesthetic to make it go away again before the next time round. But I think what's what's different here that Paul is, is hinting at is that the role is no longer of interest. Not, not, the, not the nature of the work and how it rushed through to you and how it's too much to cope with, but you just don't want to be an accountant for any reason. You know, because of how naughty things have gotten, which is interesting. So in his third subset under a changing profession, he says the accountancy profession has always faced an embrace change. Embrace change? <laughs> he says we'll all have to consider how to ensure that people working remotely acquire some of the judgment skills that have traditionally been acquired through physically working alongside more experienced people. Now, again, I see that reflected in the feedback I get from practices every day. You know, they are wondering how some of their uh, juniors are going to learn from their you know, laptops in their bedrooms or in their kitchen tables what you learn by being in the culture of an accounting firm. So difficult to drive culture remotely, Martin. We've spoken about this before. And with the need to upskill, it's really difficult to implement training and development programs for young accountants. It, it is. So I think that's a genuine concern and a genuine area of change. His fourth is the day of the bookkeeper, where he says, I believe that good bookkeepers will be more important than ever over the next few years. And he qualifies that by saying greater accuracy at transaction level is at the heart of the ambition for making tax digital and essential for maximizing the value of business information and the potential technology. Now, I would agree with him there. We have seen the rise of the bookkeeper over the last I'd say six years, particularly since about 2016. Um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a greater value placed on bookkeepers and the role they play within a business. When you say the rise of the Martin, do you mean there's more of them or a greater importance of them? Because if you speak to some of the vendors, they're doing everything to marginalize the impact of bookkeeping. Yeah, yeah. I, there are, I'm sure there are more of them, but I was referring to the importance of them. You know, for our US listeners, you might be aware that you're bookkeeper is much closer to your business than your accountant is, where here in the UK, it's often the other way around. Our accountant knows our financial ins and outs, and our bookkeeper only knows what we tell, tell them we spent money on. So there, there is a difference in culture there, but certainly I see bookkeepers becoming more part of the conversation. Do you see bookkeepers becoming more advisory in their role, Martin, not just reporting on the numbers, but telling the businesses what they should be doing in a way that the accountant isn't. I would love them to, because I don't see a lot of evidence for that, but there is certainly potential and scope for it, absolutely. 
So his penultimate subject then is, is regulation, which I'm sure we all get very excited about. <laughs> While digit- digitalization, new ways of working and changing skill sets will all be themes in 2022, he says that he believes that regulation will be as well. And he concludes by saying another paper published by our revenue here or the IRS equivalent in the US showed that R&D claims, that's research and development claims of dubious merit, are very clearly and rightly in the revenue sites. That's code for the government are cracking down on fraudulent claims. Mm. So that was an interesting one. And, and perhaps regulation is not the best subtitle for that, but crackdown on fraud is as well. And he concludes, Rob, by saying beyond 2022, that most of the things he's flagged will affect the accounting profession way beyond this year. The way we react to them this year will have a strong impact on precisely how they do so, of course. Some changes are beyond the control of the accountant, as he rightly points out, but there are many that we can influence to ensure they impact positively for businesses, clients, practices, tax administration, and the UK generally. Listen to that order, Rob. Businesses first, clients second, accounting practices third, tax administration from a government level fourth, and the, the nation fifth. So he's put his focus exactly where this podcast believes accountants should place their focus on businesses and clients before anything else. This is really insightful, the way you're unpacking it, Martin. And Paul very generously said that accountants have embraced change, which evokes really the open arms nature of change. But we know that a lot of it's been through gutted teeth. The implications are clear here that some changes accountants are taking on to be better. Some of them are forced upon accountants, but either way, there's a whole lot of change coming up. Yeah. So what does this mean for our listeners? It means get your head up, look up, look outside your cubicle, look outside your office, look outside your building and look at what's going on in the profession. Be part of the conversation through communities of which there are many for accountants now. Be part of the conversation through conferences and understand what's happening to your profession. And more importantly, what's going to happen to your organization, because we call it a practice. Indeed, it is a practice but it's also a commercial organization that's for profit. And therefore, how we make profits in the practice is going to be very, very important going forward because it's going to change. Thank you, Martin. That is the news and the professional update for you accounting practitioners today. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our special leaders interview today. And I'm thrilled to have with me today from Praxity, it's Sam Louie. Hello to you. Hi, how are you, Rob? We're fantastic. It's so good to have you with us, Sam. And uh, for the benefit of people that haven't come across you and even Praxity, just give us a, a little bit about your background and what you do there. So I joined Praxity in June last year um, as the incoming chief executive, taking over from Graham Gordon, who's done an amazing job over the last 12 years. He's a legend. We've had him on the show. Legend, before. absolutely. And um, he he left us at the end of December, and I'm now sort of flying solo. Um, so, gee whiz, that's a bit scary. But I joined Praxity from the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants, which is the merged body between the AICPA and SEMA, which was formed in oh, 2017 now. And before I joined Praxity, I headed up international advocacy for the association. And prior to that, I worked in Africa for SEMA, heading up the Africa region for 17 years, I think. That accent tells us that you're not from around here, as we say. So you've done a lot, a lot of traveling in your time. Where is home now? So home at the moment is London, but I'm a, I'm a Joburg, Josie girl, born and bred. So and South the, Africa. For people that don't know Praxity and the Networks Associations Alliances in general, just explain briefly what you do for your member firms. 
An alliance is really um, where a number of individual firms, independent firms come together in order to work together for the benefit of their clients, but they each retain their own independence, their own name, um, their own systems and approaches to how they do business. But when they have clients who are expanding internationally and they need to provide services for them in another country, they can reach out to another member firm and together service that client appropriately. We want to make sure that we've got the right firms in the right places with the right skill sets to service clients. And that's what's important. How hard is it for an accounting firm to do that without something like Praxity? Well, I think it would be really difficult because you don't know what you're getting into, do you? Exactly, yeah. Um, I know working across the world that standards are different. Um, what might be a mid-sized firm in the or a small firm in the UK could be a massive firm in, an, in a small emerging market. And you also may want to make sure that you've got the right skill sets in that market. So when you see that a firm is a member of Praxity, for example, it has that kite mark. We go through quite a stringent quality control process before we accept firms. And we repeat that stringent quality control purpose uh, process every three years. So we make sure that, you know, that firms are really working to a high standard. As well as the international collaboration, introductions, referrals to global business opportunities, what are the other benefits of being part of an alliance like Praxity? The main thing is you get to know what's happening around the rest of the world. You know that when you do refer clients, um, you're going to keep those clients. And of course, you have a choice. So if I look at, you know, I've got a client and they're going into country X and they need a particular skill set in that country, maybe it's an outsourced payroll because they're not setting up a finance team yet, or you know, they're only dipping their feet in the water, or maybe they've got a full-flung operation. Those all require a different skill set. And because we have a multi-representational approach, you can actually look at the different firms in that country, and we can have up to six or seven different firms in a country, and choose the one that's the best fit for your client. So I think that that's a real advantage. You're not forced to use one firm and no firm has exclusivity in a country. Of course. And when you talk about second setting a high bar and standards for uh, becoming part of Praxity, what in your view separates the good accounting firms from the great ones, Sam? Oh, it's people. Rob, it's always people. <laughs> um, I think the really great ones are the ones who attract the best people that they can they invest in those people and they develop those people because all the systems and processes that a firm has is developed by its own people, isn't it? You know, you can buy them in, but you're going to have people who think and care passionately about what they're doing. And that means you deliver great service. I think that's what makes the difference. And in these challenging times with the pandemic, what kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession is in currently? Because you talk to a lot of people all the time about this. I think what we've seen over the last two years is the emergence of the accounting profession as a really trusted advisor. So as people have had to negotiate all the different packages that governments have put in place through COVID, they've relied on their accountants to really help them access those packages, to produce the accounts that they need to access those packages, um, to help them think about where their business is going, how to manage their cash flow, how to survive in some instances or thrive in others. So I think that role of trusted advisor has been critical over the last two years. And I don't think we're going to see that ending. If I can just give you an indication, we um, have just compiled our results for the year ending 2021. And as an alliance, our firm's revenue has grown by nearly a billion dollars in 12 months. Goodness, in COVID times. In COVID times. So that is really people approaching the firms looking for that advice because they know they need it. 
But there is a difference, Sam, isn't there, between an accountant and a trusted advisor? Because we know that compliance is the backbone, the bread and butter of the accounting offering. But more and more, they're needing to think like business owners, be entrepreneurial, develop this commercial acumen and business awareness so that they can not just tell clients what's going on, but advise on what they should be doing next. No, I think that's exactly right. But if you think about it, each set of partners really are the entrepreneurs, the managers, the leadership of their own firm. And then they're taking that advice and sharing it with others. Um, some of our firms would have great advisory practices specializing in all sorts of different things. We have one firm, for example, in Indonesia that specializes in auditing of supply chains to make sure that your supply chains are free from, for example, uh, modern day slavery, exploitation of underage workers. So, you know, when we think about auditing and, and business advice, it's not just what ordinarily springs to mind, but other things too. We have one firm that values brands. Wow. And it's clear that obviously these are not praxity firms, but there are some accounting firms that have not stepped up, that have got things not quite right during these challenging times. So what do you think some firms have got wrong? So I think if you hadn't invested in moving towards a more online way of working, I think you would have found the, the really challenging because the minute you move away from paper, it um, people are working from home. You can't be posting paper up and down. And in some countries, you know, you might as well make a paper airplane and throw it out the windows, <laughs> rely on the postal system. So, you know, if you haven't moved to technology and your clients have, you haven't worked with your clients to make sure that they've moved onto technology, you're really going to have found it incredibly challenging. Well, when you say challenges, what are the big challenges that accounting firms face right now, particularly if they want to grow? So I think the first one, and I've touched on that already, is finding finding talent. There really is a war for talent out there. Why is that, do you think? The profession's changing. So we have this idea that stereotypically it's sort of dull, grey men in, you know, grey suits and very little personality. And we know that that's not true. We know that actually it's quite exciting. And then the opportunities that firms and the profession give you is massive because you can really do all sorts of things in it. So I think there are other professions that are somehow, you know, more desirable, seen as more exciting, more challenging. Um, and so we're really fighting against those other professions to attach talent in. And secondly, generally speaking, you need quite a good understanding and um, maths and problem solving ability. So if you haven't got that, either in the education system or as a skill, it becomes more challenging. Yeah. And it's certainly those firms that are building up that employer brand of choice. They're becoming a good place for accountants to either start their career or develop their career. What are they doing right to attract that kind of talent? It's about investing in their people. Honestly, if you bring people in, you train them properly, you build that brand loyalty, you engage them with what the firm does. They care about you as much as you care about them. You know, you can't expect people to, to engage with your firm if you don't engage with your people. It's just not going to happen. No, we hear, though, a lot of accounting firm websites make the same promises, the same claims, both to clients and potential staff. They offer the same values and the same culture and the same vision. But it's one thing saying it and another thing living it out, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But I do think you get a sense quite quickly of whether firms, any firm, whether it's a, you know, a professional services firm or or a corporate lives their values, you get you get that sense of congruity or incongruity quite quickly. And 
if you look at, if you're going into a firm, for example, as a young trainee, the sorts of questions you need to ask are about how many people do they keep? What is, look at their turnover rate. As the pyramid narrows towards the top of the firm, you know, what does that picture look like? Do all the partners look exactly the same? Do you know, or is there kind of diversity at the top? And how does that firm link in with your career aspirations and your life aspirations? Not, you know, so you might want to spend time with your children, for example. Will that firm offer you that opportunity for flexible working or perhaps flexible hours that you're not working 40, 60, 80 hour weeks? Maybe you can have a smaller portfolio of smaller clients as opposed to working on massive audit with big deadlines. So it's really about how the firm responds to its people. And that's the point. Nobody wants to be chained to a desk for 10 to 15 years to make partner and do 70-hour weeks. The people coming into the profession now, they want a life. They want some choice, some autonomy, some flexibility, some career options, don't they? And firms that don't offer that will not be the employer brand of choice. That's exactly right. But they still want that progression too, though. Don't be mistaken. But there are no perfect professions. We can't say the accountants have, have got it all right. We do know they've probably pivoted and adapted to change better than we thought they might have done during these challenging times. Is there any aspect of the sector that perhaps hasn't evolved as quickly as it should have done in your eyes? I don't think we've done a great job educating non-accountants and non-business people around what auditing is. When there was a parliamentary inquiry into Carillion, Uh, The base committee report talked about there being a performance gap between what auditors should do and what they actually do. I know the audit profession prefers to talk to that as a perception gap, (laughs) um, because actually what the audit profession does is quite clear and clearly laid down in the standards. But it might not be what people think that they do. And I think there's a lot of confusion between what external audit does and what the internal auditors do, for example. And their job really is to go and find the fraud. Well, there's certainly a lot of scrutiny on audit right now and a, a lot of government intervention and regulation in the accounting profession generally. That's a good thing in your eyes? Um, I think there's a balance to be found between regulation and self-regulation. I don't think you can ever legislate for honesty. But I think you can certainly ask people to subscribe to codes of conduct. I think there can be sanctions for not adhering to those codes of conduct. There are rules, there are principles, there are standards that need to, that are clear. And it's clear when people haven't stuck to them. And then, you know, sanction must take place. You mentioned earlier the astonishing statistic that perhaps city firms had put one billion of revenue into their bank balances over the last year or so. That's astonishing growth in these challenging times. What are those firms doing well that is helping them grow so much, Sam? So the key thing, I think, when we look at our firms and what they're doing is servicing the client. And I know that sounds so cliched, but really it is as fundamental and as basic as that. If you're working with your clients and you understand your clients and you're supporting your clients in their growth ambitions, then you will grow along with your client. I mean, it it sounds, you know, fundamental and it is fundamental. It's back to first principles. What does that actually look like, though? We, We know about client service, service delivery, client experience, and everybody claims to be client centric. It's on their websites. It's in their values. Not all of them live it out. So as that plays out, as it manifests itself, what does that look like being close to the client, looking after them? Well, you can see it in the awards and uh, uh, there's too many to list, but we do a roundup every Friday on our LinkedIn page of all the awards that our firms have won or the great things that they're doing. 
and you can get an indication from that how they're being recognized in their communities for what they're doing, whether it's sponsoring the local under 10s football league or whether it's doing amazing things for their staff so that they're listed in Forbes as one of, you know, the world's most liked and best employers. You know, we're seeing all those aspects playing out. And do you encourage your member firms to go for awards like that, to get that good PR, that external recognition? That's their choice. Some some firms like to go out and uh, show what they're doing and share what they're doing. Other firms, you know, prefer to just pay it low. And the beauty about Praxis is that's their choice. You bring up an interesting point, though. It reminds me of these millennials and, and Gen Zs coming in now. They don't just want a good career path and a good story to buy into. They want to know how firms are contributing to society, making a difference in the world. So we bring in things like environmental and social governance, corporate social responsibility. How are you looking after the local community? How important is all of that? It's critical. I mean, I think ESG is probably going to be the single biggest issue that changes how our firms run themselves and how they service their clients. I mean, I think it has it's twofold. So each firm will have to look at itself and its supply chains and what it's doing um, to make sure that it complies. But equally, they're going to be doing advisory work to their, their clients around ESG, how to implement things like integrated reporting, for example, And they're also going to be auditing reports, integrated reports. And so they're going to be auditing things that are non-financial. Those issues around sustainability are non-financial aspects are going to be a big change for many many of our firms. And it's whole new skill sets. So it may be in the future, for example, that the people who come into the profession haven't trained as accountants, but might have trained as, for example, a geologist. And they're going out um, and auditing reserves of mining companies, for example. We hear a lot about diversity and inclusion as well. You're a a passionate professional woman working in what is ostensibly a man's world still, but things are changing. How important is it that we keep on this road? Oh, I think it's very important. I joined SEMA in South Africa in 1998. So that was just four years into Nelson Mandela's presidency, four years after the first fully democratic elections. Um, And it was a country working very hard and still working very hard to transform itself. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of having achieved in South Africa was changing the demographic profile of the profession in terms of SEMA student body from to 50-50 women and male split and moving from a 35% black student base to a 75% black student base. Unless you live in an emerging economy, you can understand the impact of um, accessing a profession on your personal socioeconomic circumstances, your future career prospects, but also how you're able to contribute to supporting other people in your family to also lift them up. When you look at the impact of that change, I think you see how it impacts economically and really transforms lives. You're a very passionate person, very charismatic. I can understand how you would sell causes like that. that They're very noble. What do you love most about what you do? I think it is seeing people and firms change, develop, grow, be the best they can be, reach their full potential. I think that's really what excites me. I also love working internationally. I'm completely curious about different cultures to get to the same objective, but they play it out in different ways. Um, So I love traveling. I love interacting with people in in different settings and, and understanding what they're about and where they're from. Let me give you an example. You might, if you're driving down a 
sort of country road in, in South Africa see a man and a woman walking down the road and the man won't be carrying anything and the woman will be carrying all of the parcels. You might look at that and think, gosh, that's not terribly chivalrous. Isn't that a bit rude of the that's man? That's exactly what I'm thinking right now. Yes. <laughs> well, why? Then you have to ask yourself in, in that culture, if you're walking down the road in the bush in South Africa, it's quite a dangerous place to be. Ah. And so the woman is carrying the parcels so that the man has his hands free to vend off any attacks from animals. And unless you understand that and you get into it, you know, you don't understand where people are coming from and why they come from wherever they come from. And for me, I, I, that's completely fascinating and interesting. That makes complete sense. Although my wife is great with a knife. <laughs> so you might be carrying the parcels. <laughs> yeah. But I know what you mean. I used to live in Hong Kong for a few years. And, and if you're a, a tourist just visiting somewhere for a short time, you don't get that sense of culture. But when you live somewhere for an extended period of time in a different culture, you do get a sense of what it's truly like for those living there, don't you? Exactly. And it's the same outcome, just expressed and different behaviours to achieve it. And it's so interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of people spoken into your life over the years. Have you read a lot of books, developed some kind of personal philosophy for success? I think one of the most influential people from a book point of view would be Joseph Stiglitz. So I first came across him when I did an MBA 20 years ago, uh, and he wrote a book called, when he was chief economist of the World Bank, called Globalization and Its Discontents. It made a real impression on me about how emerging markets could harness and access the wealth to grow. He was in London to promote his latest book called People, Power and Profits. Um, and that kind of looks at the relationship between profitability and, and purpose and, and how you can unleash market forces, but also rein in the worst of the sort of capitalist effects of completely uncontrolled markets, which I guess goes back to what you and I were talking about with, you know, regulation in the audit markets. How do you unleash the best, but make sure that you, you regulate and contain the worst? Have you then developed a personal philosophy for success? You've risen to a, a prominent leadership role in a global organization. Not everyone gets to do that. So you must have some kind of mantra or philosophy that's helped you get there. Two things, I think, Rob. Um, being open to opportunities in life. I'm always interested when people have a five-year plan and they write it down. And, and people do say you should do that from a career point of view. But I think if you do that, you maybe narrow your focus too much. Um, I don't think I would be where I am right now if I wasn't open to opportunities and things that come in from left field where you say, wait, what? <laughs> and then, oh, okay, that's interesting. Tell me some more. So that's the first thing is being open to opportunities. And the, the second thing I think is being curious, asking why, understanding how. I'm, I'm always most interested in people who have a sort of spark in their eye. And when I employ people, that's the first thing I look for. Never mind the skills, because you can always train, retrain people. But if there's that spark, that curiosity, that's what gets, gets them excited and passionate about what they're doing. Would you describe yourself as a, a comforter, an encourager and a handholder or a disruptor and a motivator, if you like? Oh, I think I'm, I'm, I like to be quite visionary. So I, I like my team to understand where we're going and what the vision is. I've spent the last three, four months working with our board on building on the outstanding work that Graham has done at Praxity over the last couple of years, but evolving the new three-year strategy. So we have a really clear direction because I think people are smart. And if they, if they buy into where you're going, they can figure out much better than I can how to do their jobs to get there. So I'm, I'm all about having my, my teams back and empowering them to get where they want to go. 
And critically, it's important that you've got a great team behind you because one person, one leader like you, you can't do it all on your own. Not a chance. It's all about the team, 100%. (laughs) I just sort of see my job as maybe the conductor of the orchestra, but I've got to have excellent violinists (laughs) and drummers and, you know, big diversity across the board. Otherwise, we're not going to make beautiful music together. I'm glad you got the drummers in there. I used to be a drummer, so that's excellent. (laughs) People say we're not musical, but I think we are. (laughs) You're passing on advice. You're mentoring young people coming into the profession and into praxity. Is there any great bit of career advice that you've been given over the years that stood you in good stead? One of my former bosses at um, AICPA taught me about credit. So not in the financial sense, but about letting other people take the credit, let the credit flow for what's been achieved. And I think that's been such good advice and something I try to do. We all like to get the credit for doing a good job. Um, We all like to be thanked for doing a good job and praised. And I think that I learned that from him. And that's been really an important factor. Is there uh, anything you changed your mind on in the last few years? Um, Well, five years ago, I moved from South Africa to the UK, changing my mind about where I wanted to live, where I wanted to see the rest of my career and and taking advantage of the opportunities that the UK had to offer. The accounting profession generally, let's say I put you in charge of accounting worldwide. You are now the czar of accounting. (laughs) Is there anything you'd change if you had a magic wand? What would you make better? What would you bring about? I would love to see it more respected. And I would love to see it doing things to make it more respected. How would you get started down that road of making the profession more respected? From a UK point of view, um, and I know this is a global podcast, but from a UK point of view, we're going to see regulatory change. And I think if the firms and the professional bodies can come together and really think about how they want to reposition the profession in the wake of those changes, I think that would be amazing for the UK. In other jurisdictions, I can think of, we just have to make it more attractive. I mean, it is a very financially rewarding profession, there's no doubt. Um, You're unlikely to get the same sort of shares if you start your own tech company or something. So maybe it's not Uh, in that space but actually it's a great career to have it really is a great career you can go places see people move around the world within firms you can change what you do every couple of years you can be continually excited and enthused by what's happening it's a fabulous career you're such a great ambassador for it (laughs) what excites you most about what's coming up over the next 12 months or so and both personally and and for the world that you live in Well, I'm excited to be implementing our new strategy at Praxity. I think that that's going to be great. We're thinking about how we maintain our our number one position because that's always a scary place to be. It's much easier to be a challenger than to to be at the top. And so how do we maintain that, maintain our quality? So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about team coming along that journey with me. I'm really lucky to have a fantastic chairman of my board, Phil Verity, who's the UK managing partner of uh, Mazars. Um, and so with his and my board's support, I think it's going to be a fantastic year ahead. What advice would you give to the accounting practitioners listening who want to do a better job, make more of a difference, have more of an influence in their role, and generally make the world a better place through their work? I think you have to know what you're talking about. And that means work outside of work. That means 
you know, doing the CPEs or CPDs that you need to do, listening to podcasts like this. So if you're listening, well done. Being on LinkedIn and reading the research reports, the thought leadership, because then you talk from a position of authority. When you're in a room, you will have a view on emerging and new issues or indeed become the expert on new and emerging issues. And that's what's going to ignite your career and set it on fire. Goodness me, that's a great call to arms. Uh, but you paint a very exciting future for the accounting profession. Sam Lewis, that's been so wonderful to have you on today. Thanks for your passion and your insights. Oh, no, thank you. So it's Here's What Works. This is the segment of the show where we share with you stuff that's proven, tried and tested to work for accounting practitioners. And Martin, we hear so much about how accountants are overwhelmed, they're overloaded, they've got far too much to do. What's the answer? What works? Here's what works, Rob. In another segment of our podcast, we have a, a section, a series running at the moment called Why Didn't They Buy, where we look at why an accountant says they didn't win a, a potential client versus what the client themselves said were the reasons for not coming on board. And one of the ones that we are yet to cover, but will come up in a future episode, is that there is doubts sown into the mind of the potential client when they notice that the partner is doing an awful lot of the work that they'd expect a junior to do. And immediately they think they're overpaying or that the firm is under-resourced. Now, for partners in practice who feel overwhelmed uh, and want to free up their time, there are only a certain number of avenues for them to go down. And if you want to decrease labor intensity, and I know that most practitioners I know want to decrease labor intensity, there are only certain things we can do, and here they are. Number one, we either take recruitment very seriously. I'm working on a report right now about the greatest challenges and their solutions in recruitment and retention for accounting firms. And what's clear is that accounting firms rarely take a recruitment strategy seriously. They rarely know how many interviews it's going to take, over what period. They very rarely anticipate capacity requirement months in advance. They very rarely run a talent pipeline to keep in touch with people's careers um, to try, uh, try and attract them at the right moment. And as such, they are perpetually bringing in people who are a poor, a poor cultural fit, a poor technical fit, too expensive for the work they do, and so on. And it always causes them to get back involved in the work. Or oh, not bringing in enough people, Martin, and that's capacity, isn't it? They're doing the £50 an hour, $50 an hour jobs that they should be doing the $250, $500 an hour jobs because nobody else can. Absolutely. So if once we decrease labour intensity, number one, we have to take recruitment strategy very seriously. Number two is pricing and profitability. Because the only other way is to do less work for more money. To do less work for more money, we have to create bigger outcomes and provide more value. To create bigger outcomes and more value, we have to step away from compliance. To step away from compliance, somebody else has got to be doing the, the work. So in order for a partner in practice to free up their time, they have to decrease their labor intensity, which means that the work they take on has to change. And therefore, they have to institute in the practice a minimum fee level. So if a job is, and I don't know what the minimum fee level might be in your firm, but you might say, if it's, over, if it's under 1,500 pounds, the firm might look at it, but I don't look at it. If it's, if it's under two and a half grand, whatever your currency is, the firm might look at it, but I won't look at it because I'm too expensive, because that's going to take up too much of my time. So the first is taking recruitment very seriously. The second is pricing and profitability and getting that right. And there is one more, Rob, but you're not going to like it. Well, just before we come to that third one, I guess the zero one, Martin, starts with acknowledging that you've got a problem with labour intensity, that there is a problem in the firm. It could be cultural. 
It could be the way the policies, procedures, processes are set up. Once you articulate that, say that out loud, then you can look at these two initiatives you've talked about. And then the third one. So, yes, what is it? Let's have it. Well, as you just said there, Rob, if anybody listening to this is working a 70-hour week, <laughs> the third one is the one that accountants hate to do the most, delegate. Ooh. Often I've found that it's not a question of lack of resource, why they can't delegate, but lack of trust. They will not let their baby go into the arms of another. No one does it like me. No one knows the client like me. The client will only take it this level of work. And that all may be true. And guess what? You've just changed yourself to the client for life because you've just said that because they'll only talk to you and because it's only you they're prepared to do the work, you can't get free of it, which means your team can't progress, which means they can't become any more commercially astute, which means they leave, which means you are anchored down to low profitability work for the rest of your life. Stupid. Delegate. And what is that? Is that an ego thing? Is that a control thing that's going on there? Part control, part trust. They may have been burned in the past uh, and might be once bitten, twice shy. But unfortunately, you have to start again. You have to get back on the horse and go, okay, I got burnt once. Let's see what lessons we can learn from that and try not to get burnt a second time. Either way, I've got to delegate because I can't progress. This firm can't progress. Our profitability can't progress. And the quality of our clients can't progress until I do. Wow. So ultimately, and here's what works for making sure you decrease your labor intensity. It starts with an admission that there is a problem. Absolutely. An admission there's a problem. And then taking the future capacity requirements the future profitability requirements and the future delegation requirements of your practice seriously. That's what works. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our newest commercial partners here on the podcast, it's Practice Ignition. Martin, how would you explain what those guys do? Businesses such as accounting and bookkeeping firms use Practice Ignition to one, help them grow, two, be more efficient, and three, create win-win client relationships. There are nearly 5,000 accounting and professional services firms around the world who use Practice Ignition, and they do so to win new business with impressive digital proposals. They engage clients with a clear scope of work, and get paid on time by automating payment collection. PI integrates with the leading business apps such as Gusto, QuickBooks, Xero, Zapier, and it does so to automate time-consuming tasks. That means less admin and more time for clients, Rob. We've got a special offer from our PI partners. Use the code AIR21 to receive 25% off all plans for your first six months. But that's 25% off with the code AIR21. And the link is info.ignitionapp.com forward slash AIP for accounting influencers. Practice Ignition, it's time to ignite your practice. And welcome to the show, and I'm thrilled to have with me today, all the way from the other side of the world, it's Mark Jenkins. Greetings to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. It's nice to be here. Well, we finally got it together, Mark, and it's lovely to have you on the show. For people that haven't come across you and what you do before, just give us a little overview of your background and your areas of expertise. Chartered accountant, had my own practice for 25 years, and then after a while, I got a little bit bored with just doing tax returns and annual accounts and really wanted to influence more small business owners, so decided to sell my accounting 
accounting firm and work exclusively with other accounting firms coaching them. And as a result of that, I formed a company called The Gap, uh, which offers business development services and training and education to clients. Uh, what kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession is in right now? I'm pretty excited about what's going on in the in- industry right yeah, now. And I, and I think the main issue that we've got is that we've got a real opportunity right now to reinvent ourselves. COVID and the various stages of lockdown that everyone's in, it's creating a, an opportunity for accountants to re-engage with their clients in a much better way. And I just think the more we can do this, it's going to educate our clients mm. more and close this disconnect. I'm seeing a real opportunity here for accountants to reinvent themselves. And they have, they've pivoted and changed and done all sorts of great things. But this is a real opportunity to help small business owners to understand the true value that, that an accountant can offer. Yeah. And certainly COVID is accelerating things. But when you talk about this disconnect, what have clients traditionally thought about their accountants? Well, there's probably a bit of rhetoric around this and there's probably some pretty staunch views one way or the other. My view is that most small business owners don't see their accountant as someone who can help them to run a better business. Right. Having said that, I think there are lots of accountants who are helping their clients to run a better business and breaking the mold. So part of the problem, I guess then, is that accountants are not educating their clients on exactly what they do, how they do it and how they can help them. Is that it? And if so, why is that so important? Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of staying relevant to your clients in this changing world that we're in. There was a really neat podcast I listened to recently, a webinar actually from Hinge called Inside the Buyer's Brain. And a key statistic that came out of that for me was that where people thought that they were buyers of professional services and over 2,000 buyers were surveyed and where people thought that their accountant was relevant to them, they were 86% likely to refer more business to that accountant. Whereas if they didn't think they were relevant, in other words, they're just providing compliance, that sort of thing, they're only 50% likely to provide a referral. But more than that, they were much more likely to be looking for another accountant in the next sort of two or three years. So I think it's all about relevance. And so education is one of the great ways for accountants to stay relevant with their clients. Why haven't accountants educated their clients as you're talking about, Mark? Is there a complacency or an arrogance about accountants sometimes that they have an elegant business model with recurring fees and it's all so easy and they're they're needed in what they do? No, I wouldn't say accountants are arrogant because I'd be talking about myself if I said that. But um, <laughs> I'm I, talking I think, about other accountants, obviously. Oh, exactly. Oh, well, that's just, yeah. Let's, the main issue here is that accountants are super busy doing the do. They're doing the compliance work, right. probably a little bit to do with a lack of formal training in sales, which is where you come in, of course, is that because they are not trained in how to sell, they assume that because their clients aren't asking for help for these other things, that the clients don't need them or don't want them. And because their clients are buying the grudge purchase, the annual accounts or the compliance work, mm. they assume that's what the small business owner wants. And there we have this disconnect because these small business owners associate their accountant to someone who provides them with great compliance and tax savings and all that sort of thing. They don't see them as somebody who can help them to run a better business. And and look, I'm talking generally here. There are lots of accountants who are moving in this direction and doing this work. And it yeah. sits really nicely alongside the compliance work. But the education is two ways. We've got to educate our clients so that they will understand not how to run a better business so much, but really to understand what the accountant could possibly offer them. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what areas do you feel clients need to be educated on? What do they need to know about their accountant? Yeah, that's a great question. And if I refer back to that webinar, 
webinar inside the buyer's brain, they looked at the top five areas that small business owners were looking for help with. And number one was attracting and retaining good team members. And I know there are lots of accountants who are looking to do that themselves. Mm. Um, So that's all about how do you provide a great environment for people. So have a good plan, align those team members' plans with your business plan and educate them and train them, that sort of thing. The second thing that they really needed help with was planning and structure. And the third area was cash flow and finance, that sort of thing. And certainly right now, that's going to be really important. So that was a survey of 2,000 buyers of professional services. So that's a very clear indication of what people want. My personal view, the sorts of things that business owners were looking for were certainly help with cash flow, certainly help with understanding their numbers, maybe some help with some tax technical things, though I never got many people coming along to tax technical courses. But really, it was about how to run a business better, maybe some help with leadership or getting the best out of their team. So just kind of take your accountant's hat off and think like a business owner, what are the challenges you have about running your own business, sales, marketing, you know, the, the different departments in your business. So heaps of things and really interesting work to do as well. And you're talking about the realm of advisory here, aren't you? It's beyond the stuff that needs doing and the stuff that adds that extra value. Absolutely. And in New Zealand, we refer to advisory as business development. And I know I could open up Pandora's box here if I talk <laughs> about advisory. And so we won't do that. But I talk about Forbes's definition of business development, which is to provide enduring value through products, services, and relationships. So if we're going to provide some enduring value, our education needs to be about skills that the business owner will have for life. So that's things like how to sell or how to market, how to understand their numbers and their cash flow and their financials, that sort of thing, because that's going to empower them. And I think the other thing is when it's that two-way education, it's educating them about what the accountant can offer. The flip side of this is that it's then enabling the accountant to sit alongside or sit side by side or virtually across the the Zoom screen with clients in the environment we're in now and come up with a solution to the problems the clients have that they wouldn't have come up with on their own and that the accountant can't tell them about. If the answer were that simple, the business owner would have already come up with it. So the idea here is that combined expertise of both parties is going to give a result that's better than either could achieve on their own. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of where you've seen client education being successful? Yeah, so I think in the current climate that we're in, yeah, certainly webinars are the ones that are working really well. We're seeing great success with firms that are running webinars consistently and regularly. The sorts of results they're getting are attracting new employees to the firm, which is an unexpected consequence. They're attracting new clients who, in the current environment, are saying that they're really quite frustrated that they haven't heard from their existing accountant. I mean, I've had friends of mine that used to be clients of mine ringing me up saying, Mark, are you going to start your business again because I haven't heard from my accountant in the whole time since COVID's happened. And I've been talking to accountants and hearing the other side, they're saying, we are so slammed. We're so completely out of control. We've got so much going on. We haven't got time to reach out to our clients. So the idea of a webinar is a great way to get that message out to lots of people all at once. Yeah, it gives you scale for sure. And you bring up an interesting point. Even here in the UK, there are many businesses that have not been served well by their accounting firms in the current COVID 
COVID pandemic, perhaps a lack of proactivity, perhaps lack of organization and intentionality, perhaps a lack of knowledge. But for whatever reason, loyalty is going down and clients are crying out right now for help and solid advice, aren't they? Absolutely. You may have very loyal clients. They're loyal, they trust you, and this is this trusted advisor, but they don't see the accountant as someone who's going to help them to do better in their business. And so it's not a complacency. I know how challenged and how busy and how difficult it is, all the the lockdowns and the furlough and the accountants are super busy right now. So it's about creating the space and the time to be able to do this because you truly believe that it's your role to help your clients to do better. And then I know many of the listeners will be thinking, well, that's all well and good. I'm really flat out at the moment. Converting that into a paid service rather than trying to give off the cuff answers on a quick email or a quick phone call because that's actually doing your clients a bit of a disservice. Mm. And you're starting to tap into the results now that accountants get from being more educational and advisory led with their clients. Obviously, it creates more loyalty, which you've mentioned, but there's upsides in revenue, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And I guess what we want to do here is make sure that we're playing the long game here. We're not looking for instant results. You know, if we're going to start running webinars and client education, we're moving the needle. We're looking for a 1% change. And if we're constant and consistent, you know, Einstein's law of compounding, you know, 1% better every day for a year and you'll be 37 times better. So we're moving the needle slightly. So the idea here is not, I ran one webinar and I only got 5,000 pounds worth of committed work off the back of it. If you did that, by the way, that's a fantastic result. But if, you, <laughs> if you got nothing off the back of it, don't be worried about that because you're moving the needle. So the results, sure, will end up in many of our Gap member firms that are running webinars are seeing great results, great conversion. They're, they're attracting new clients. They've you know, had one just recently, um, you know, six out of the last eight proposals have been accepted. And, and I'm sure that was all to do with that positive branding that comes across from that client education. Mm, and whether you call it client education, could we call it thought leadership? Could we call it content creation? Or, are all of those in the same box for you? Yeah, I don't really like the thought leader. Most people that call themselves thought leaders are, are just doing that as part of their marketing. The key message here is that you are there to solve problems for your clients. And, and to solve the problems, first of all, you've got to find out what they are. And to find out what they are, you've got to engage with them more. And then you're really just closing the loop and together solving those problems. And so it comes back to education. And then off the back of that education, having a strong call to action, what do people do next? How do they engage with you? How do they find out what the next steps are? You talked about how busy accountants are, and for sure they are putting out fires right now. They're being called the fourth emergency service. They are standing in the gap between everything that's happening with the medical side of things, the government side of things, and these poor businesses that are struggling to survive. But they are overloaded. So have you got any tips for accountants that need to create the time to be more strategic and advisory in their approach? Yeah, one of my favorite sayings is uh, what you can say yes to is defined by what you say no to. So I know when I had my own accounting firm, when I had a new client, it was like, oh, wow, this is really exciting. I'm, I'm bringing in a new client. Hmm. And my client selection criteria was you know, probably heartbeat and wallet. Um, and in fact, my debt collection skills were so poor that it was just heartbeat because they didn't pay me very well. And then, and then I was thinking, oh, did I do estate work? So they didn't even need a heartbeat. So the, my main point here is that we're not particularly good at saying no to the wrong clients. If we say we want to provide lots of 
of client education, but the only work we're taking on is compliance, then we're never going to have the time to be able to do this work. And then the second really valuable tool that I used in my own firm was what we call the Achiever Matrix. It's the matrix where you've got whether it's urgent or important. And in the, in the bottom right, you've got something that's not urgent and it's not important. And it's actually a quadrant of waste. And it's a bit confronting for me to sit here and say to listeners that perhaps they're wasting their time. And so let me just share where I was wasting my time. So I was wasting my time in meetings because I didn't have a clear purpose for the meetings. I didn't have an agenda and I hadn't set a timeline. So a meeting that could be done and dusted in 45 minutes was taking me an hour and a half. So that was a waste of time. And I'd kid myself that I was in denial that that was actually providing value to the client. Where are we wasting our time? Another place where we waste time is on emails and social media. The average time people spend in social media once they go in is 20 minutes. What about meetings? Let's do meetings that we stand up in the meeting rather than sit down. We'll be quicker that way. Limit the meetings to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So be brutal with your time management and also think about that quadrant two, that quadrant of quality where it's not urgent, but it's super important. Our education sits in that quadrant. So let's commit the time to doing that. Commit the time to planning and, and our own plan and our own uh, recreation of our business. Set that time aside and, and as if it were a client meeting. And just a couple of other things that I did that freed up some time for me and you know, listeners can decide which ones of these are going to work for them. I delegated my annual accounts review meetings with clients and had my senior team members do that so that I could then have a better quality meeting with the client talking about the future. And the second area where I freed up time was I taught my team how to review sets of financial statements so that my review time really reduced as well. So I know many listeners will be thinking, I can't do that. And I thought I couldn't do that. I thought I'd lose lots of clients. And when I recreated my business in that way, I lost one client and I gained plenty. So it was that, that worked really well. Yeah, they're great points. And when we talk here about business development, it's not so much the advisory stuff, but it's building a pipeline of opportunities. And accountants say, we're too busy doing the doing, as you say, doing the fee and in charging the hours. We haven't got time to go out and do business development. But when we do do business development, it's quite open-ended. You're talking about client education, running webinars, creating content. There's no immediate revenue from that, is there? And where do they go with that if there's not an immediate response? Just remember you're moving the needle by 1%. I used to have clients who would refer clients to me and the new clients would come in and say, oh, Michelle said that I should come and see you because you run lots of seminars because I wasn't running webinars in those days. Michelle's never even been to one of my seminars. Mm -hmm. But the, the point was that she saw that as proactive. And so she was wanting to refer other clients to me because that would make her feel good and she wanted to be associated with success, that sort of thing. So again, just think about the long term. You're not necessarily going to get revenue straight away, but you're going to build your brand. And that building of your brand is going to do lots of things. It's going to help you retain team members. It's going to help you attract team members. It's going to attract new clients. It's going to make sure you stay relevant with your existing clients. It's going to give you content that you can slice and dice in many different ways, maybe put it out on YouTube, on social media. And so you're actually building content that can be used lots and lots more times. You can put it on your website. So yeah. think widely about client education, not just webinars. I mentioned webinars, but think 
think about how you can repurpose that content as well. Yeah, that makes good sense because accountants might get disheartened. I'd put a LinkedIn post up and only four people saw it or I didn't get any comments or likes or I ran a webinar and the registrations were low and the conversion was low. So have you seen any strategies to lift that engagement, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really good question, Rob, because in the lockdown right back in March 2020, when we started and with the worst of this and when webinars were being run, everybody was at home. They were in lockdown. They're like, we need help. These are business owners. We need help. So we're going to jump on the webinar that if our accountant runs it. So registration rates were really high. We're getting literally hundreds of clients showing up. And so many accountants thought, boom, I'm on to the next best thing. Run a webinar 48 hours beforehand, put one piece of marketing out and I'll fill the virtual room. The reality is now we need to be thinking about two weeks of marketing, different social media channels. People need six touch points before they're going to engage with you. So you've got to get on the phone. You've got to ring some clients. You've got to get some social media posts out there. You've got to put it on on your email signature that you've got an event coming up. It's got to be on your website. And so run your traditional marketing to get the right number of people showing up. It's not going to be one email that's going to cut it. There are so many emails going around right now. But most importantly, the trusted advisor ringing the clients and saying, you need to come to this. I've been thinking about you. This is really going to help you. So did you see that email? Do you want me to send it to you again? Yeah, that's really good. And clients definitely need this stuff. They don't always respond to it in the best way, but goodness me, now was a time for accountants to stand up and be that trusted advisor, whether businesses are struggling or they're doing really well and taking advantage of opportunities. They need that accountant, don't they? Absolutely. And I talk about our core purpose at The Gap is accountants accelerating small business success. And success right now might be survival. Success might be getting that bounce back loan or might be understanding what the break-even sales position is, a minimum viable sales for their business right now. Mm. And that could be changing with the various lockdowns as well. So let's find out what our client's definition of success is and then help them to achieve whatever that is. And what would you say to accountants, Mark, that say, hey, look, I'm not a marketer. I didn't come into this game to sell and market and I haven't got the content creation skills. I'm not a writer. I'm not particularly a speaker. That's the marketing department's job. You're talking about them taking ownership of this and producing stuff, running it themselves, aren't you? Yes and no. Most accounting firms now are outsourcing to some extent. Yeah. You know, they're outsourcing their compliance. So that frees up capacity. In my view, they should be considering outsourcing marketing as well. And so there are various providers of marketing content, that sort of thing. At The Gap, we write hundreds of articles and we put them onto, for example, the BOMA platform. And so that's a, a way that accountants can outsource their marketing. I don't believe you can outsource selling because I think selling is a skill that you need to learn, especially if you're that trusted advisor. But there is content out there. I mean, we're not here to talk about the gap, but I wrote all my own content in my own accounting firm and it took me seven or eight years. So it's a massive amount of work. So look to subscribe to somewhere where you can get that content. And the key point here is to just be thinking about what your core purpose is. So my core purpose in my accounting firm, it was unlocking business potential. I just thought, what do I need to do to unlock the business potential amongst my clients? And that was provide some client education. Then I had to write my own because the providers that I was working with helped me with sales and marketing, but they didn't help me with the content. So I had to write my own. So that's the advantage of the gap now having that content. Yeah. And accountants should know what to write about, what to speak about, because they're talking to clients every day. They should know those pain points and those problems because they should be asking questions about what 
those clients are caring about. Absolutely. There's a wonderful principle that I subscribe to called the FGG principle. Yeah, find out what your clients want, go and get it and give it to them. So if <laughs> we like think that. about how do we find out what they want? Well, we have to ask questions. Mm. So we have to have meetings with them saying, look, how satisfied are you with the service we've provided? How could we have helped you more? Are there areas that we could have served you better? Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What are the goals you're trying to achieve? And actually right now, where do you see yourself in the next 12 months? Yeah. And what are the problems and challenges that are getting in the way? And then how can we work together to overcome those problems and get to those goals? That's just a simple principle. You don't need a whole lot of content there. You've just got to ask better questions. So that's how you find out what they want. Let me just close the loop on the go get it and give it to them part of the FGG principle. Go and get it. You then need to think, okay, am I going to write that content myself or should I subscribe to it? So my recommendation is just subscribe and then you can write a little bit yourself, you know, the little social media posts, that sort of thing. But here's the key. You've got to do the last G of FGG. You've got to give it to them. So don't fail to implement. Don't subscribe to something and then not change anything. Don't outsource your marketing and then fail to deliver because your clients have poured out their hearts to you, what they need, what they actually want. So make sure that you deliver. Do whatever you have to do. Open the door of opportunities to those C and D clients that don't pay you so that you can free up capacity to give your clients what they really need. Yeah. Mark, this is terrific. If people want to find out more about what you and The Gap are doing, then what's a good way for them to reach you? Yeah, so best way is just on my website, thegapportal.com, two Ps in the middle of Gap Portal. We've got resources on our website that you can download. There's client education information in there on the resources page. So plenty of opportunity there to find out more, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And presumably you work with accounting firms internationally, don't you, even though you're in New Zealand? Absolutely. We're in eight different countries with The Gap. The main thing here is that we want to be working with accountants who want to accelerate small business success, who want to stay relevant to their clients in arguably their time of greatest need, and who want to implement better ways of running their own business so that they can get the three freedoms themselves, time freedom, financial freedom, and mind freedom, and get the same for their client. Yeah, that's terrific. So Mark, would you leave the accountants listening with uh, what you consider to be best practice in client education? What would you say to them to get them started? Look, I think the first thing to do is to work out what you want from your business. What is it that you want? So put your plan together. And that plan is most likely going to be providing a proactive service to your clients. Get some accountability around how you do that. So I really love the idea of having somebody to hold you to account to put your plan together. And part of that plan needs to be client education in some form. But link that education to the services that you want to offer at the back end. So if there's things like planning, forecasting, or coaching, then run educational events that will link to that so that it's not a product push at the end of the webinar, that it's very obvious that you're educating them to help them to understand their numbers better and you offer them a know your numbers service or a financial awareness coaching service off the back of that. Mm. So keep it simple, pick one or two areas to focus on and implement really powerfully. Yeah, and let's try a little bit of negative motivation. If accountants are not willing to do this or can't do this, what's the forecast for them, Mark? Oh, look, I'm not a doomsday sayer. I don't think compliance will ever die. The reality is that firms who do this work are going to pick up the best employees. They're going to pick up the best clients. And what that's going to do is that's going to strip out the value of the accounting firms who don't do this. And so the risk for them is that they don't achieve their succession plan or that the people that they had in mind that were going to take over the business from 
them will jump ship at the last minute. And I've seen a lot of that. So I'm not a doomsday say, I just think that we've got to get on the front foot here, stay positive, focus on what we can do, you know, take some ownership of the fact that we owe it to our clients to help them to run a better business. Mark Jenkins, that's been terrific. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's been a pleasure. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissick. Congratulations, you have been listening to and learning from and entertained by the Accounting Influencers Podcast with me, Rob Brown, and my co-host, Martin Bissett. We're a global daily radio style show which serves accounting practitioners all over the world and we give you what's needed to level up and make the most of what is happening in this crazy world right now. We kicked off with the news and what 2022 has in store for the accounting profession. Then we had an interview with Samantha Louis. She's the incoming global CEO for Praxity Alliance. They are the leading organization in the world for accounting firms that are members encouraging global collaboration, international business, referrals, introductions, and just generally getting the insights on what it takes to be a successful accounting firm in today's challenging times. Then in Here's What Works, Martin unpacked what works for accountants to decrease labor intensity. Now we're all putting in hard work, but are you doing the right kind of work at the right kind of fee structure? Martin gives you the lowdown on that one. And we finished off with an interview with Mark Jenkins on how client education can drive growth in your accounting firm. We hope you enjoyed the episodes. Thank you to our commercial partners as well. And we would love you to share the show, to talk about the show to others, to give us a little review rating on the podcast app of your choice. And remember to tune into Saturday's bonus episode where we give you how to sell better, win more business, and we slant it from the client's perspective. Enjoy the rest of your week.